0: Welcome to Gangroo the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Before we get started today, I just wanted to take a few moments for a little bit of shameless self-promotion. My book, Running with Ghosts, came out at the end of August. You may have heard the last podcast episode that we did, in which former guest Stephen Kurtz interviewed me about the book. Two-time former guest and my former editor, Glenn Stout, gave Running with Ghosts a glowing review on Don Venata's Sunday long-read newsletter, and so far, all of the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads has has given the book five stars, so check it out if you have a chance. Uh, Running with Ghosts, a memoir of surviving childhood cancer, was published by the Sager Group and is available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Now, on to our show. I'll be talking with Vanessa Gregoriadis, whose first book, Blurred Lines Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus, came out during the first week of September. The book is one that I think is powerful and important, especially on college campuses. Vanessa was on the podcast three years ago. In fact, episode 30 went live almost exactly three years ago on November 17th, 2014. And in that episode, We talked primarily about some of her celebrity profiles. Toward the end though, we talked briefly about a new piece she had out about a young woman at Columbia University who had been carrying a mattress around everywhere she went to bring light to the fact that she had been sexually assaulted and the university had done little or nothing about it. Emma Sokowitz was that young woman and she kicks off Vanessa's book. The first chapter is titled Mattress Girl.
1: The general daily coverage has been really hard to read, and I think people don't, still don't really understand what's going on.
0: Vanessa has won a National Magazine Award and been anthologized regularly, including in Next Wave, America's New Generation of Great Literary Journalists. Vanessa, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm good. Uh, I, I uh, am excited to have you on the show to talk about um, your book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. Um, and as I was reading this book, uh, I it, it made me think back to the, the last time that you were on the show, um, which was, I think uh, it was November 17th of 2014, so it was literally three years ago, uh, almost to the day. Um, and, and in that episode, we had talked uh, primarily about some of the celebrity profiles that you had been doing at the time. Um, but towards the end, we talked really, really briefly about a piece you had just written on Emma Solkowitz. Um, it, hey, so, so, And, and Emma kind of leads off the book, uh, leads off your book. And I was wondering, like, have you been working on this book ever since we talked three years ago?
1: Um, I think I probably have. <laughs> <laughs> um well, I, I spun, you know, off of that story and wrote wrote a book proposal about four or five months after that story came out.
0: So, um, uh, so I guess before we really get into a whole lot of that, can you, can you talk, in a nutshell, talk about, or, you know, tell us what the book is, what Blurred Lines is, is about?
1: Sure. So, you know, the Emma Sokolowitz story is, the yeah, Emma Sokolowitz is a woman who, um, Some people listening to this probably know her as Mattress Girl. Um, She was a Columbia student who said that she was going to carry a mattress around the campus, like a real mattress, a 50-pound, six-foot-long mattress, um, just like the one she had in her dorm room, around Columbia's campus for an entire year until um, the university either punished the boy that she said raped her, which they had refused to do, or until um, she graduated. And so this was kind of a stunning move by an undergraduate student um, in 2014, and uh, her story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it Mm -hmm. was the story of September 2014. People just couldn't believe um, they were agog or aghast or one of those words at um, what she was doing and what the university might have done to her and um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the I'm sorry, <laughs> um, the, the, like, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton said, like, that image should haunt us all mm-hmm. about her walking across campus with her mattress. Um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand invited her to go to Obama's um, State of the Union address as her guest. I mean, this was a major story, Mm -hmm. Um, and it really brought to light um, the issue of campus sexual assault. So when I saw all of that happening, and I was kind of perfectly poised to write about it because I had already interviewed her and was planning to do a story about what was going on at Columbia, I thought, okay, this is a really interesting book um, because we have women beginning to talk out across the country. We have policy actually changing. Um, we have intense national media glare. And, you know, national media glare on hot young coeds and sexual assault is uh something that can go really right or really wrong. <laughs> right. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, well you know, um, we're stepping into a really um fascinating moment here and I could spend the next couple of years trying to capture it. Um, so then I quickly kind of wrote a proposal, um, and my agent said, why didn't you have this proposal written before the article came out? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I didn't know it was a great idea before. So, um,
0: so, yeah, so that's what happened. So was the proposal that you wrote, um, uh, was that focused primarily on, on Emma, or was it broader?
1: No, it was much broader. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, conceit for the book was, okay, we know that this is becoming an enormous um, media story and certain places are being highlighted, like Columbia or Yale, um, but uh, how is this playing out at campuses across the country, and how are students across the country actually dealing with this problem, metabolizing it? Um, how are guys shifting the way they think about women and sex um, in response. Um, what is the real rhetoric that's coming from um, the kind of Emma Sokowitz, very kind of radical feminist wing of um, those campuses? And how is that changing people's opinions on what should be considered consensual and what should be not?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Was Was this the first book proposal you had written or had you written others?
1: This was the first book that I had written. Um, I had ideas for mm-hmm. books, and I had certainly written, um, you know, memos,
2: right? right?
1: Um, but I had never really written a um, a proposal. No. Well,
0: what was that like? Because um, I know what it was like for me, and I'm curious. I like to ask other writers and reporters, especially. Uh, what that what that type of writing, and in many ways reporting, is like.
1: Um, well, you know, I didn't find it to be too difficult. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the proposal is also kind of the easiest part, right? Because it's almost like a marketing document, right. like a business plan. We will do this, and everybody will love it, and right. it will be so great. Um, right. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the uh, the general um, concept you need to get across to people who might want to buy your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all potential, right? I'm going to interview these people. And here's a little spray of a couple of the people that I interviewed and what they had to say. Um, so here's a taste of it. I mean, it still was a substantial proposal. It was like a 50-page proposal, right. but it wasn't one of those Proposals that also include a 30-page chapter. Right. You know, um, I it didn't include a table of contents that made clear that I had a game plan. It mm-hmm. was really, um, you know, potential. Okay, here I am. Here's the way I see this. Um, here's the kind of students that I'll reach out to across the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's my previous work as a journalist and reporter that shows you that I not only can talk to people who are 19 and really capture their voices, but I also am, um, you know, someone who has like a track record of writing really um, kind of influential and stylish pieces Mm -hmm. that capture the zeitgeist. And this is like a zeitgeist moment as well.
0: Right. So uh, so you get the book deal. Uh, What's the first uh, piece of reporting that you do?
1: So the first thing I did was go back to Wesleyan, which is where I um, went to school. So I um, went back there. It was actually 20 years to the time that I graduated, which is pretty (laughs) unbelievable. Um, (laughs) You know, when you think about it, like that's a generation right there, 20 years. Um, So, you know, I graduated in 1995 and 2015. I went back to Wesleyan, um, which is in Connecticut. And I live in New York, so it was. No, it's like a two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was able to go up there. Sometimes I would sleep over at an Airbnb near campus, actually, like, next door to the dorm that I um, lived in my freshman year. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, college campuses are really disorienting. You know, that's why you have orientation,
2: right? right?
1: At the beginning (laughs) of school, like, figuring out, like, well, where are the frats? And, like, you know, where do kids really hang out? Um, how do I get into this dorm? Do I need a swipe key? Should I just stand here until somebody lets me in? Um, it was great to go to Wesleyan because I knew where everything was. Right. You know, like, and I know that the frat that is beta, theta, pi is called beta by students and psi epsilon is called psi u. And, like, you know, I knew how, I knew the, the kind of language that, um, all the nicknames of the dorms and the nicknames of the campus buildings and um, the professors. And just, I knew enough that um, talking to students and approaching them, I seemed, you know, like not a stranger, right? right? I seemed like somebody who um, was trustworthy enough to talk to. um, Because some of the other campuses I went to you know, particularly Syracuse, which is a really enormous school Mm -hmm. and was very, very snowy and cold on my trips (laughs) up there because I also went there in the winter, which was a huge mistake. You know, I found it pretty difficult to navigate the campus um, and connect with students because, you know, I didn't really know anything about the school. So it was a great first step.
0: What... um... Now the one thing that drives that, that not I was gonna say drives me crazy, but that's wrong. But the, the one thing that um I, I, I think I'm fascinated with is the way that colleges and this doesn't really have anything to do with, with your book, but it, it mentions on something you said, the way that, that that um uh you know, nicknames of buildings and places where students sit when they eat, like types of students. Like it it just keeps the, it's the same on college campuses. I'm always fascinated by mm-hmm. by how that you know, but you could go back 20 years later, and the dorm buildings still have the same nicknames, and this you know they they still refer to the fraternities in the exact same way. That's really, I think, totally. It's, it's hilarious. It yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> it, and I would, somebody needs to do like a scientific study. <laughs> I don't just to to satisfy my own curiosity uh, on how that happens. Um, but uh, so so like, as I was reading this book. Um, I you know I was constantly struck by how you were able to get students to open up uh, and talk about stuff that we don't talk about as a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, how 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 do you how do you go how do you do that?
1: Well, okay. I mean, first of all, you know, I mean, I'm a reporter, right? This is what I do for a mm-hmm. living. So, um, there's some degree to which I'm I'm really like this is really how i make my money Mm -hmm. right um is connecting with people doing during in-person interviews and um knowing how to comport myself to get the ultimate best answers that you can get out of somebody um in that kind of setting so you know that's like how i put food on my table Mm -hmm. right like i am kind of known for profiles where Um, people say a lot of really interesting stuff and maybe stuff they shouldn't say. And they say it to me, but they wouldn't really say it to a different reporter because that other reporter might ask questions in the wrong order Mm -hmm. or might give them some sense that they're not really being heard or might just ask really boring questions. So I really kind of pride myself on that and consider myself, you know, a reporter first, like a face-to-face, good kind of let's break it down in person together um kind of reporter of people so i do think that you know this is um talking to students you know was kind of really working to my strength Mm -hmm. um as a practical matter i mean i did do what i just said which is like if there was a swipe card to get into a dorm, I just waited for somebody to open the door.
2: Right. And then
1: I went in. You know, I didn't, um, I mean, I didn't tell any corporate communications department mm-hmm. that I was a reporter on campus to interview students. I didn't go to a conference room. Right. I didn't call um, students, Uh, you know, student groups beforehand and say, okay, you're from the men's project group. Um, I'm a a reporter coming to campus. I would like to meet you in the campus center at one o'clock sharp to have a 45-minute interview with you. You know, I just kind of wandered into the campus center and looked around the room and said, like, who looks interesting to me here? Like, who looks dynamic? And, I, you know, I think it's pretty easy when you get to a room to see like, well, who, who seems verbal? Who's like gesticulating wildly with a friend and everybody at the table is looking at him and interested in what he has to say.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, that's the person I want to talk to Um, because that's going to give me the most dynamic quotes and the least prepackaged one. Right. So that's the way I did a lot of the interviews. I really just went to college campuses, like pure shoe leather, nothing set up beforehand no interview set up beforehand and walked around and said, hey, I'm not a journalist. I'm writing a book about sexual assault on campus. I want to ask you some questions. And definitely some students were like, that's weird and like <laughs> didn't want to talk to me, you know? Right. And then other students were kind of like, oh, like let me remember the thing I heard from orientation right. and be like, sexual assault's really terrible. I'm pro survivor at all times um you have to believe the women sorry i have to go to class right you know there were definitely kids who were just kind of parroting back what they mm-hmm. had heard and it was clear that they hadn't really thought through it but they just had heard that this is what should be their opinion on the subject um and then they had to go to biology class you know right but there were a lot more kids who were like oh that's really interesting like who are you where'd mm-hmm. you come from oh well i think this you know when i was a senior i thought that and Never really thought about this before, but since I've been here, my friend confessed to me this story. We had this crazy thing happen on a dorm hall with a girl who was assaulted and really changed my mind. And, you know, so I did tons and tons of interviews like that. And then um, we'll kind of decide, like, okay, well, who do I want to follow up with? Mm -hmm. Um, Either do I want to go back to that campus and see that person again Or maybe just check in via email, um, talk on the phone, you know, there's probably, I mean, I interviewed about 120 students in the end, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think there are probably about 20 students who are really developed characters in the book. Right. And most of those people I had more than one conversation with.
2: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, I did follow up with them, even if they only appear in the book once, I definitely followed up to get more detail or see how they were doing, you know, um, a place like Wesleyan, which is a through line and, you know, a, a story that I returned to the kind of closure of the frat at Wesleyan that happened while I was there that, um, you know, I went to Wesleyan probably six,
0: six or seven times Mm -hmm. to report the book. biggest challenge for you as a reporter on this book?
1: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm making it sound all so simple, right? I'm making it sound like, oh, it was just cool. I just showed up and, you know, it was so great. But the fact is that, you know, I did have some trips to Syracuse where it was, you know, negative 10 and 10-foot snowdrifts outside (laughs) and... (laughs) you know, I tried to get a sorority to kind of be interested in talking to me and they were kind of freaked out by me. And Syracuse is like a very long five-hour train trip Mm -hmm. from where I live. And it was a huge bummer. And I ended up just like kind of getting on the train and thinking like that was a waste of time. So I definitely felt, you know, a lot of pressure to come back from any trip with something,
2: mm-hmm. like some
1: nugget of um, good info or a new character or something like that. And there were some disappointing trips. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also really hard to be at things that were not, you know, in my own city if there was, like, a meeting um, of a group of, you know, for example, at Wesleyan, like when they were closing down the frats, there were a ton of meetings that the student government had, where like the frat guys and the kind of radical students were arguing about what should happen right. at the fraternities, because the radical students felt like these male you know, dominated party spaces, were part of the sexual assault problem on campus, and they had to be um, eradicated mm-hmm. and like closed down immediately, and you know was like, well, okay, but I mean, am I going to drive two hours to Wesleyan to hear that, um, you know, to go to that meeting at 7 p.m. on a Sunday night? Mm-hmm. Like, I have two kids. Right. You know, am I am I really going to go do that? What was challenging for me was like for a magazine article, I would have known because I'm a long-form writer and I've written, you know, over 100 probably long-form stories, I would have known, like, oh, okay, you know, do I really need to go to that? No. Mm-hmm. You know, I could just get the notes from somebody. I could call up one of my new friends at Wesleyan and say, take some good notes and I'll call you later and let's talk about it. But with a book, I didn't know, like, do I need that scene? Do I not need that scene? How do I, um, you know, how do I really... Uh, outline this whole book mm-hmm. and figure out what reporting needs to be done in person and what doesn't. I found that really challenging. Right. Um, there were was a lot of stuff that, you know, a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor, a yep. lot of stuff that I did that I was like, well, this doesn't really add up to anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This was kind of a waste of a day. And know,
0: yeah, that was mother. <laughs> yeah. I was going to I was going to ask you um like th- this is the biggest project you've ever worked on is that 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 is that, that's safe to assume, right? Oh, for sure. Um yeah. did what did you do differently or did you do anything differently besides like the the internal debate that you just mentioned? Um uh for for reporting a book versus reporting a long form magazine piece.
1: Um I did, I mean, in terms of what,
0: so. I'm just curious. I mean, did your reporting change in any way? Um, Did even, you know, how you sat down to write? um, uh, Or or was this just like a a super, super big um, typical project for you?
1: It was totally different in pretty much every way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, long form, I mean, I'm talking about kind of like 6,000-word stories. Right. Um, I have figured out how to do that, mm-hmm. you know, over the years, and it's not very stressful for me. You know, it's kind of stressful landing the subject and making sure, um, okay, can I get everything I need from this person? Um, can I talk to not only the person, but the people around the person? And... Will I get enough time and how do I coordinate a trip to Kentucky to see this person Mm -hmm. um, and get the maximum kind of scenic value out of those, you know, like if you travel to Kentucky to do an interview, you want to make sure, okay, I can see this person in different locations. Um, I could see that person at home and then go to the person's workplace and maybe see something else and You know, for a long-form story, you need to place the person in different um, settings and you will use and be able to describe um, action in those places. That's just nuts and bolts, long-form writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But here, you know, there were kind of, there was, you know, how, how do you write a reported book about such a difficult topic? Right. Um what is the thesis of this book? Mm-hmm. Um you know the thesis of the book ended up being that you know there's a new standard of sexual consent for the millennial generation and what's happening on campus is ultimately going to be replicated throughout the country which you know of course we're starting to see with a Harvey Weinstein situation and um, all of these women speaking out about sexual harassment in the workplace. And they're speaking out about sexual harassment that really goes the gamut from what Harvey Weinstein did all the way to, you know, kind of perverted jokes in an office. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same thing is happening on campus where sexual assault means a lot of different things that it might not have meant to um, the Gen X or boomer generation, you know, we're just becoming, women are becoming more outspoken and, you know, it's a wonderful thing to say, like, I want guys to respect me more. I want for this to stop. Um, so, but even figuring out that thesis, um, and how to make the scenes kind of, um, create a scaffolding for it and also create suspense in the book was really hard, you mm-hmm. know, um, figuring out how to not tell people, oh, this is what I'm about to say and then just say it over and over in the space of 300 pages, but actually make it a little bit like a thriller, which is the structure that I did. Ultimately, I started off with like, okay, are these women telling the truth or not? And what is truth really? in this situation, and what are you, you know, going to end up thinking at the end of this book? I mean, that's kind of the way I set up, like, the first 30 pages, and then kind of reveal my point of view as mm-hmm. it goes further and further along. I mean, that was hard. It was really challenging, um, and I only kind of shifted some of the way that I did that after a friend of mine read the book. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you're being too obvious at the beginning. You're giving away the store and telling everybody exactly what you think. um, And, you know, you need to fix this. Right. So I started to think about, you know, there's the kind of nuts and bolts reporting, and then there's the actual, like, um, research, you know, of sociological studies and all Mm -hmm. of that that had to go into it. And then um, the outlining and everything else, and then also like, okay, well, how do I make this a book that doesn't, you know, turn off people? Like, I'm trying to make a book that both men and women can read about sexual assault, which is a pretty hard project. Right. Um, because everybody's coming at it different with a different perspective. So I didn't want to turn people off from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't want to do all the like, kind of cliched, like John Krakower in Missoula stuff where you start off with like an awful, Mm. physically violent, um, just ghoulish rape, um, because that would have been antithetical to what I really saw on campus, mm-hmm. which was that, you know, a lot of what was going on was um, kind of coercion of growth right. um, and not physical violence. Right. Um, so, yeah.
0: I, I like how the book is broken up into the three parts, uh, and, and I guess this is probably uh, a, a result of some of the things you just talked about, like how to, how to structure it, but it's consensual, non-consensual, and the man are the three parts. Um, how did those come about? Like where in the process, uh, the writing process, uh, how late in the process did those did, did that type of uh, three-part structure set settle in on you? Um, I mean, I, I think that, I'm trying to
1: think back, oh my God, there were so <laughs> many drafts. Uh, I think that the, General, well, okay, first, you know, there was, I understood at the beginning that I was going to have to tell some number of stories mm-hmm. and tell them fairly fully. The actual story is like, this is what happened between these two people at the University of Texas, and here's how it all went down. But um, when I was halfway through, I realized, okay, well, the macro story here about how American culture is shifting in terms of the way we think about sexual assault is really the story I want to tell as kind of like the, you know, not only the headline, but the subhead also. And these other stories that I have with these characters should not be told so fully that they kind of take people away from that initial idea so um, you know I read Peggy Orenstein's book Girls and Sex and after I read that book I was like you know what this is probably a good model for me where Peggy's very present in that book and she's really moving readers towards her own conclusions and the characters are really secondary so I went kind of from thinking about a book that would have been filled with a lot of profiles of different college students to a book that would be more essay-driven um, and have secondary characters, mm-hmm. like the characters are like the sub-runs, right. right? And so um, I once I realized that, I realized, okay, these characters don't actually need to recur that much. Mm-hmm. They actually don't need to recur at all. They can just be introduced and then disappear. And so once I kind of thought of that, um, that was when I came up with this three-part structure. And the idea was instead of hitting everybody over the head with all the rape stories Mm -hmm. at the beginning, let's do the consensual part of sex first on campus. Let's establish what consensual sex on campus looks like and then build up to a kind of crescendo of, okay, well now here's what sexual assault also looks like. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the way I came up with that. And then it seemed fairly obvious to me that I was going to have to talk about policy Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: people are absolutely fascinated with the way the campus courts have been constructed since Obama told, you know, colleges that they needed to deal with a sexual assault problem more concretely um, so I felt that that was kind of natural mm-hmm. to put all of the policy stuff towards the end of the book right
0: right it's uh it, it's interesting uh, since the book came out uh, the first week of September there has been an explosion uh, of media coverage of powerful men uh, who've been who've been exposed as sexual predators and um, and uh, I, I was going to ask you, like, your views on that and how that coexists with Blurred Lines. Uh, and then about 20 minutes before we were scheduled to talk, I saw that you had an op-ed in the New York Times today um, focused especially, specifically on, on that. Can you talk a little bit about that op-ed and, and kind of how it ties what's ha- what we're seeing today uh, with what uh, is, is covered in your book? Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, I said a little bit before um, about what I think um, the parallels are, right? So Mm -hmm. that we know on college campuses, like the whole upswelling of talking about sexual assault on campuses has brought forward a lot of divergent story. Mm -hmm. So it's brought forward, you know, some physically violent rapes, but very few rapes with a gun or a knife, Mm -hmm. Um, very few stranger rapes. Um, very few rapes of students walking from the library to the dorm, you know, um, and, uh, you know, it, it has certainly brought forward stories of almost like necrophilia, right, of um, guys um, having sex with women and right. also men who are passed out from drinking, which is, like, really disgusting. Mm-hmm. and a significant problem on college campuses because college campuses are so crazy um, in terms of drinking, just the way that the universities themselves have kind of um, really cracked down on alcohol um, in dorms or on campus, but like have no problem with fraternities just, you know, getting everybody way too drunk in right. disgusting basements with vomit on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um like that's a significant problem, you know, but there are also all these, pro- There, there are, you know, this is a date rape, like a situation mm-hmm. on college campuses, right? We don't use that phrase very often, but I'm sure there's some people listening to this who remember that phrase from the 90s, um, which was, you know, about two people on a date go home to one of their apartments and um, the woman usually doesn't want to have sex and is pushed into it anyway, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And, you know, people in this field like to use the phrase acquaintance rape now because date rape implies those people were, you know, in a romantic relationship and a lot of times they're really not. They're more acquaintances, like they meet at a party and then a guy says, oh, hey, come to my apartment um, off campus because I have more beer there mm-hmm. and the girl will go not thinking that she's going to hook up with a guy and the guy will push her into it. Right. So that's the kind of situation we're talking about. Right. And, um, I think that, you know, what, what did you say to make sure that you communicated to that guy that you didn't want to do it? We're finding that, women are doing things all across the spectrum, mm-hmm. right? They may not even say no. Um, they may not fight the person off physically. And what college campuses have been very interested in is saying, you know what, maybe you don't have to say no. Mm-hmm. You don't need to fight the person off. Maybe the guy needs to figure out how to reel in that behavior and check himself. Right? And it's not up to the woman to be the, you know, the, we like to call it a sexual gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guy just needs to figure out how to change his behavior. Now, we all know that, like, it's also really hard for guys to make a first move. So there's a lot of confusion around this because guys are also like, oh, my God, like, but how do I ever make a move on somebody? Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll think I'm like a rapist. But that's not really what we're talking about. When we're talking about guys who are doing the kind of stuff, the kind of pressuring that some of the people in the media recently have been accused of. Right. You know, when you listen to the tape of Harvey Weinstein um, with the Italian actress at the hotel, and he's telling her, like, you know, that you need to come into my room and I'm not going to try anything. And he's just like this motor mouth pressuring her. Mm-hmm. You know, you listen to that tape and you think, OK, that's coercion. Right. You know, um, okay, you know, moving in for one is wanted and having a girl kind of,
2: like, haha, know,
1: that's a different thing. Um, yeah, but there is this confusion. I mean, there is, you know, we're in a kind of radical shift here um, of our, what's acceptable sexual behavior. And, you know, there could be questions about it. Right,
0: right. Well, Vanessa, what's next for you as a reporter? Where are you, you Beyond um, publicity for the book, uh, what's going on with you? Are you working on anything now?
1: Um, I'm trying to figure that out right now. <laughs> um, I am probably working on a story that I can't really talk about, but I'm you know, trying to line up as we speak. Um, but, yeah, um, I, the unfortunate part is that magazines, in the kind of years it took me to... Um, finally put out this book, magazines um, have gone through kind of a stunning decline mm-hmm, right. um, in, you know, n- not truly quality, but in their influence. Right. So I'm trying to figure out, like, well, where can I write that, you know, I'm not in this for money, but I'm definitely in this for having space on the national stage. And, you know, when I write a really deeply reported long form story, like all long form writers, you know, we want that to go wide and we want people to read it and engage with it and for, um, people to change their opinions or policy to change. Mm-hmm. And it's hard right now to know like how, how do you do that? Right. How do you do this and this, that, you know, in, in this new environment where it's so difficult to tell what will go viral and if it doesn't go viral, basically, you might as well not written it because right. hardly anybody reads it. Right. Um, it's, it's very hard to tell where to have the most bang.
0: Well, thanks for coming on the podcast again. It's been great talking with you, and uh, good luck.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: I've been talking with Vanessa Gregoriadis. She's written the book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. The book was published in early September. On our next episode, I'll talk with Michael Cruz. Cruz was the guest on episode 16 when he was a reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. Now he's a senior staff writer at Politico and has been writing some incredible pieces focused on post-2016 election America. That episode will be available on November 27th. You can find just about all of our episodes, we've done 55 of them now, on our website. You'll find all kinds of interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Justin Heckert, Ginny Murielaskis, Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Ben Montgomery, Chuck Klosterman, Mac McClellan, Thomas Lake, and so many more. Just go to www.gangrythepodcast.com, and gangry is spelled G-A-N, G-R-E-Y. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just go there and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Technical help, as always, is offered by John Scratta and Steve Cease. Noel Crouchley is a student assistant. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.